Good afternoon, Michael Malice here. Let that be your welcome for the next hour. We have with us, I think probably our most requested guest, James Lindsay, who is the co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations, author of, co-author of Cynical Theories, co-author of, what's the third one? I didn't co-author anything else. I wrote a book back in 15 called Everybody's Wrong About God. Okay, those are the three. Yeah. So you are the probably biggest point man right now in our culture taking on critical race theory, which has permeated from the universities it's, uh, into um, media, corporate America, politics. Uh, most people do not have a good understanding of what it is. They are being explicitly lied to about what it is. My a very simple example of this was during the presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden and Chris Wallace from Fox, Fox, the crazy right-wing lunatics, where he says, what's wrong with critical race theory? They're just teaching people to be polite. And if you tell someone we should encourage people to be polite to immigrants or those from different cultures, 99% of people would say, yeah, I agree. I don't want to step on someone's toes if they're an immigrant and they're hardworking. I, I don't want to make those mistakes. What is wrong with that being the claim? <laughs> you have you have an hour sir you have the floor <laughs> yeah um that actually happened recently i actually was invited to have like a dialogue and then we were doing kind of like the pre-game there on the zoom and the guy was like no just talk for an hour we changed our mind and i was like about what he's like critical race he's like okay and so if we want to do that we can but no i mean that is the, like the trick, right? So I'll just jump straight into some nasty. If we could look back at the 1953 testimony of Dr. Bella Dodd, who was a member of the Communist Party USA, and then she defected and then she confessed everything or testified everything to the House Committee on Un-American Activities, now known as the House Judiciary Committee, um, which is not McCarthy, by the way. McCarthy was a was senator. senator. <laughs> he wasn't in the House. Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But anyway, she testifies and she said, oh, yeah, when communism comes, it always comes in high-minded sounding terms. So what it'll do is it will lie about itself. And it will say, for example, at the time, what they were literally using as the line was that the communists are the true anti-fascists. So if you oppose communism, you must be pro-fascism. Just logic. Yeah, perfect. I mean, like we haven't seen that trick ever tried again <laughs> and worked, completely worked on half of the polity. Uh, but they did the same thing. They just copied this literally with, with anti-racist. They literally just copied the same mentality with anti-racist and it just tricks everybody. Um, you know, the framing that, that critical race theory is, is racial sensitivity training or is diversity training. Not even that it's one approach to. They won't even say that because they, they say that all the rest of them are somehow corrupted with you know white supremacy or something. So it is the one and only approach. That's the thing that the that lets the lie go by, right? They say that it is the way. If you're going to have diversity training, you have to use uh, critical race theory, or else you're not actually doing diversity correctly, or you're not actually looking at racial sensitivity correctly, you're, you're usually they'll say some awful thing like recentering the needs of the privileged if you don't use their completely crackpot method to do it. So first thing out of the gate, you know, you hear these, these distortions, and it is, I guess, very vaguely true that critical race theory could be construed as racial sensitivity training, but it's really racial hypersensitivity training because its first hypothesis is that race is relevant to everything. And therefore you have to think about race all the time and its relevance to everything, which seems to be hypersensitizing rather than, you know, 
I get it. You got to be careful around certain cultural issues or certain, you know, sensitive buttons. Certainly certain language is going to be inflammatory to various people for various reasons, some sure. of which are actually good. And you do want to kind of be sensitive about this. You don't want to be making jokes that make people feel uncomfortable, whether you knew better or not. And so a little sensitivity training even could be useful. But to, to, to start as critical race theory does with the fundamental assumption, its first assumption is that race is the ordinary state of affairs in society. So it is not a question of whether or not racism uh, took place, but how did racism take place in that situation? Because it's going to be there. You're already way off the rails, right? So what it is, is one way to do this. I would say a very bad way to do this. And we could talk about lots of its other scary <laughs> core assumptions. Um, but it it denies the fact that there are others. And so that lie right out of the gate should have people much more suspicious of this ideology than they are. The, this kind of ports to bet what happened in the 30s when Stalin told the left part of the communist parties in Germany to go after the liberal or the socialist parties, call them social fascists and basically refuse to work with them. And then you as a function, you got Hitler. And it's this kind of idea that like, well, what's wrong with just telling a person, hey, pulling someone aside, go, you know, when you were talking that way to the, your coworker, you know, you, you may, maybe it's insane thing, but you stepped on his toes. From their perspective, that is just worsening the problem because you're making that racist feel comfortable about his racism in a racist milieu. My operating assumption and I, I, I ha- I'm not as knee deep in this stuff as you are, so I very much want to hear your perspective, is the Marxist analysis is that everything's a function of economic classes, right? So you have the bourgeois logic, they have polylogism, right? The bourgeois logic, then you have the, the capitalist logic, then you have the proletariat logic. And as a function of your economic class, you're going to perceive things in a certain way and you're going to react to things in a certain way. Then came the counterexamples, like this guy's a proletarian, his family's been proletarians for decades he's not seeing it this way why doesn't it apply here oh that's false consciousness so it's like well it's not that predictable but then so what happened as a result is a lot of these union people who wanted better conditions they wanted you know not to be maimed at work they didn't want a bloody revolution so this was a big problem for the marxists and my understanding is what happened is instead of it being as a result of class they just crossed it out wrote race and it's the same logistical, logical approach to an analyzing how societies work. Is that accurate? That's completely accurate. Yeah, that's oh, 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it's 100%. And what's really scary is, you know, you got your, like, your capitalists here, you got your bourgeoisie. So what you've got is this idea that there are the people who set white culture, because it's all framed out in white culture now, right? And so the bourgeoisie are these good white liberal people who think that they can that's what they call them good whites that's a there's an entire book written about good white people that's what the title of the book is good white people shannon sullivan yeah shannon sullivan yeah i quote her at length in my book and then you're right it's superb because she actually goes after this very heavily from a hard left perspective yeah so um that is the same logic exactly same logic but the really scary bit just to kind of drag up something really gross real fast is that the people there's a book that was written in 1998 called How Jews Became White Folks by somebody, Brodkin, Emily Brodkin, maybe. I keep meaning to look up the first name again, but either way, Brodkin. And she argues that Jews became the people who, they worked their way to the top of white culture and the setting, the, the people who set the, the parameters of what whiteness and white culture actually look like. And, you know, it's like, man, we tried that. Lo- that logic was tried in history before, and that had a pretty damn bad result. 
Um, so there is that element within critical race theory, but yeah, it, it, it is the exact same logic that you've just laid out the exact same Marxist logic. That's now, like you said, crossed out economic class and it's replaced it with social class as understood through a very cartoonish understanding of race. Um, and, yeah, and they simplistic. don't regard the other thing I think people don't appreciate is they don't regard race literally because in their worldview, Clarence Thomas literally is not black. Bill Clinton literally is black. It's a function of ideology and not a function of melanin or your socioeconomic background necessarily. If it's you can be used against you, so people don't appreciate that they're talking about race, but they're not using the word race in any as if that term is as an objective meaning. But let's pretend it does. They're not using into anything remotely close to right. an objective sense. No, um, that's where, I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, uh, the de facto editor of the New York Times now, slipped. She's the creator of the 1619 Project and basically the bully-in-chief over there. And so she slipped last summer. We know she slipped because she deleted the tweet soon after she tweeted it. And she said there's a difference between being racially black and politically black. And so what you're talking about is when they say black, they're talking about having black politics. You bring up Clarence Thomas. He's certainly not black. They canceled his documentary during Black History Month. Um, you talk about Kanye West. He put on a MAGA hat, said, I think for myself. And they were like, literally, Tom Hizzy Coates came out. A couple of days later, I was like, you're not black anymore, you know, so and, and also mentally ill, severely yeah, yeah. mentally ill. Like this is the one time they were caring about him being mentally ill. Not that he's yeah, not, all but- of a sudden, all of a sudden now that they can they can just brand him crazy. And so um, this is this is how they think. Now, it is true that the racial category matters when somebody is going to step out and make an absolute knowledge claim. So there is a difference between. Um, somebody like Bill Clinton, for example, being politically black and somebody like uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones being politically black because Nicole Hannah-Jones gets to lean into lived experience and Bill Clinton can only lean into allyship and solidarity, which are, you know, slightly different. In fact, allyship and solidarity can be attacked, whereas lived experience is is made invincible, Um, cannot be attacked. It is the one unquestionable thing. And so this is... This is the the way that, I mean, people, I keep trying to tell people it's so freaking frustrating. It's like people race is like really far down the list about things that critical race theory actually cares about. They use it. It's useful, but they don't really care that much about it. Um, It's, it's all really, do you align with the politics or do you not align with the politics? Uh, And that's what it's about. It's, it's Soviet logic. It's creating that party that has the correct views and then everybody else is a problem. What do I need to say to get you to do what I want? That can, is basically what can be summed up very, very quickly. Uh, what Something that I find hilarious or, or um, just interesting is how many people, maybe especially like boomer conservatives, think that they will have some kind of semblance of remorse or shame if they're caught in a contradiction, whereas the basis of their dialectical thought is that reality, not that they get into this high concept, but like if you got the smarter ones, the basis of reality is dialectical, is inherently contradictory. So if anything, if there's contradictions to my thought, that's me overcoming them and creating this new Hegelian synthesis. So therefore Mm -hmm. I'm doing it right. And if you're not perceiving contradictions, you're the one who's out of touch with reality. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't catch them in hypocrisy. You can't catch them. The, the, the asymmetry is intentional. It is part right. of the strategy. The self-contradictory nature of it, as you said, based on the dialectical process that's baked in and the metaphysics that, that, that Hegel laid out and some of his followers, but not others, ran with, um, that 
that guarantees exactly the way that you just put it, that if, if you try to point out their contradictions, they, it's like they're gleeful about that. They see the contradictions as productive of their activism, and they do that in a, in a variety of ways. One is exactly what you just said, is that, you know, the assumption is that everything contains its own contradictions. And so bringing those contradictions out causes them to collide, and then you end up with this new synthesis. It's a higher order level of thinking. Another is that if you're, the people you're arguing with don't know where you stand, you can't really argue with them. The queer theorists leaned into this very heavily you know it's like if we say something that's inherently contradictory that's inherently queer and so since nobody can find you know there's no ground to stand on you have to kind of just go into this kind of like schrodinger's nothing is nothing is real everything is superimposed opposites are the same kind of topsy-turvy world and while people are lost in the fog of that you know they get to get to move the ball and you know usually through force of argument um where they're they're belittling somebody or making them out to be not sympathetic or whatever to some you know pet issue hey guys michael malice here want to talk to you about one of my favorite sponsors sheath underwear if you go to sheath s-h-e-a-t-h underwear.com and use promo code malice 20 you get 20 percent off your order what is sheath underwear good for? Well, it's the most comfortable boxer briefs you'll ever wear. They've got a ton of different styles. Go to the website. You can check them out. You can get into my pants. Their fabric is made out of moisture wicking technology. It was developed by a veteran who spent time in the Middle East where things get a little hot. What makes sheath great is it keeps you cool, comfortable, and in place. And sheath has this dual pouch technology for both parts of your guy anatomy. And the first time you put it on, You're going to be like, what is this? This is weird. And then you're like, oh, this is really comfortable and awesome. Great company. It's a strong supporter of the show. If you go to sheathunderwear.com and use promo code MALICE20, you get 20% off your order and you get to support independent business. And it's the underwear that supports you. They also have a girl's line, but since girls don't listen to the show, that's of no relevance. Let's get back to the show. I don't think people appreciate to what extent there's an evolutionary psychology basis behind all this, where it's just mechanisms for lower status people to, and not lower status due to race or, or you know, social, uh, sexual identity, but just, you know, people who aren't as the person who they're talking to. And this is a very easy, quick, and effective means to assert dominance and leapfrog over them in some kind of status hierarchy. If there was a word that I would say, or that you would say, that would automatically make you more listened to, more important, uh, more liked, more popular, more lucrative, I would say that word, and, and so would you. So I think people don't appreciate to what extent many of these actors are responding to incentives. Yeah, that's super important because I've talked to, I don't know how many people I've talked to kind of in the business world, who, but also in education, where they've pointed out, it's like they became aware that this was happening that the world being constructed around this ideology was creating incentives for them to lean into it. You know, they're going to make the deal or whatever it is in a business meeting. This is a kind of based on a real story. I'm vague, making it really vague to sure. leave out identifying details, but they're going to make the business deal. And all of a sudden it's like, it's not quite going. And it's like, yeah, but I'm an immigrant, you know, and that little bit of like magic, magic power behind it's like a magic spell and all of a sudden it's like oh well we have to help the immigrant you know and tapping into that the, the person didn't realize they were they were taking up the invitation but it was there they knew on some like subconscious level that yeah. it would work and they just lean into the incentive and it's like you can you can take yourself three inches down the road and rationalize every three inch step and end up three miles down the road before you know it and just stand around wondering how did i get here and this is the thing that i think 
most of the people playing around in this world have done. I don't think most of them, I think it's a relatively small number of people who are genuinely the, the bad actors who have, you know, cooked up these ideas or not even sometimes not even bad actors. Sometimes they're just psychologically broken people and they're trying to force sure. the world to conform to their pathology. Um, we're seeing that with Foucault right now, who, you know, it's now coming out that he probably did um, rape young men and boys as a matter and of fact. K- and Keynes as well was another one. Yeah. So I've heard. Um, and so, you know, it's funny with, with, with Foucault because he's so Nietzsche and, and, you know, Nietzsche had this whole observation that everybody who's read even barely any Nietzsche knows that, you know, Nietzsche was pretty down on the other philosophers and said, you know, the, well, most philosophers aren't doing philosophy. They're just rationalizing their own pathologies. And it's like, that's Foucault like to the end. And then the queer theorists have continued it. And now we have these like, you know, what is it? MAPs minor, something people or something like that it's just i forgot what minor attracted person is that what it stands yeah, for yeah that's it is attracted that's person their, that's yeah. their that's their code name for pedophile yeah that's they have a code name for they have to, of course everything has to be hidden behind a friggin acronym uh in lots of syllables well but i don't know if yeah it, pedos I, I don't know if it's it's hidden i i, I want to hear your thoughts on this my understanding or my my hypothesis at least is that they use jargon as a very quick mechanism of in-group signaling so if oh, i'm sure. using terms and you know if i know what an map is and you know what an map is right away you and i know we're on the same team everyone else won't know but you and i can have a conversation in plain view that'll be completely incomprehensible to everybody else and this is how you can pass in a broader culture and this is something that the soviets did very very well that they trained their operatives to pass in 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 mainstream culture and i i recently was doing research for my upcoming book and there was a, a, I think it was in West Germany when an, a Stasi operative was caught because she was using communist phraseology, like in a matter of fact way. He's like, wait, 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 wait. people don't talk like this. I'm on to yeah. you. But this is something I think people don't appreciate as well, that they use language, um, not only in completely different mechanisms than average people do, but they also view language as inherently a means for one group to dominate another. Is that not accurate? That is accurate. And just as an example of what you're talking about with their like, you know, in-group language. I was literally talking with a group of friends of, of mine who are Asian American civil rights activists, and they're in this whole group, and most of the people in it are Chinese American or otherwise Asian American. And um, they were they were asking each other, "Have you ever heard anybody call us AAPI except woke people? No, nobody's ever used this an acronym, and now AAPI stop AAPI hate or whatever is all over the internet." Um, and you are correct. Uh, my friend Mike Nana calls this discourse engineering. They believe that if you change, because they're ultimately deeply Im- involved, well, it's Hegelian on the one hand, it's structuralist on another hand. So they've taken up, I don't know how, how much Hegel influences structuralists actually, but they have this belief that the, the structure of language and the application of language actually do dictate how we understand reality, but in fact, further how reality is constructed. This is what constructivism is about uh, at its bottom. And these people are technically, you know, we say the woke, we say social justice, we say all these words. The the formal, the correct academic term for them is critical constructivist. They, they use critical theory through a, co- a social constructivist model. And this is a well-defined and well-understood and well-described term that nobody knows. So you can't use it. <laughs> it has no power to, to use it because it's so academic. But these people actually do believe that if you engineer the language the correct way, then you will, you know, succeed in, in, in getting rid of all of the problems of society, or more importantly, you will engineer circumstances in which you hold 
the linguistic upper hand and they play all kinds of they've whether they know they are or not whether they're cognizant of it or not you play all kinds of linguistic or tricks and language games we, we named cynical theories the book you know we crossed out on the cover of the book we crossed out critical with critical theories and put cynical and we went back and forth actually between playing off of wittgenstein's language games and crossing out language and putting power like the same motif but two different we didn't know which title we wanted to use when we were writing it and so that's actually what they're they're doing is they're using language to create power games and they do this a lot of times through like double meanings and equivocation um very intentionally mott and bailey I don't know if you saw the one that came out. I saw this on the internet like three days ago. Somebody shared it with me on Twitter. And it's a woman saying that, you know, well, people are complaining that critical race theory is very divisive and it has no place in our schools. But lots of knowledge is divisive. Look at math. It has division. Division is by nature divisive. And it's just like, it's a transparently stupid word game. And it works on a shocking number of people. Like, one yeah people often sometimes ask me for advice about what uh, with their kids one of the things i was very uh fortunate to be was trilingual by the time i was in like first grade and when you are raised speaking at least two languages this stuff doesn't work because it might make sense in english and you, if you only think in english you only heard english you're not going to realize how absurd it is but if you think in other languages you're like this person's a moron or a lunatic this 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 makes no sense because conceptually these are entirely different concepts but so if anyone's listening i would advise you strongly teach your kids another language because then they will not fall into this really almost embarrassingly obvious obvious trap it's really embarrassing i mean it, it, i was watching this person and i was thinking this is an adult and I, I mean that was the actual thought i'm staring at this as an adult <laughs> And I'm trying to figure out, it's like, is this being cute? Is this being stupid? Is this being right. like, is this woman cognizant of what she's doing? And it's like, the thing is, though, is this is all, it's not just this person in the education, you know, activism space at a school board meeting or whatever. It, it's throughout their scholarly literature. I mean, that's right. how we wrote our stupid papers we wrote back in the day is like, we just played stupid word games with, with things, doubling and tripling meanings and you know they think this is like deep but it's actually just embarrassing um one of the reasons i'm so optimistic is i'm sure you're familiar with the red pill white pill all that stuff right i know i think seven pills of the colors the other ones are illegitimate there's only four there's two pairs of two red and blue and white black in front of the bitcoin people they're orange pill they will they will come for you if you say there is no orange pill they came for me already but you know me too they come for me all the time what so i got red and blue those are obvious i understand those very clearly and white Um, and black white and black but that's it there's also so-called clear right that's mold bug this okay now i'm triggered pills are clear pills aren't clear the metaphor doesn't make sense if you're going to stick to this metaphor you know use it accurately the the point being one of the reasons i'm not black pilled meaning why i don't think all hope is lost and you know the good guys aren't going to win is because the enemy class are not machiavellian masterminds the vast majority of them as you're describing this is not a sophisticated thinker this is not someone who can outwit me every turn i get this is really someone who is it's not like they're saying this to their like a demagogue right the audience buys into it then they get off the stage like i can't believe they bought this division crap this person is actually perceiving themselves as making a good point and being persuasive where it's like this is not capable of persuading anyone and this is why they need so many organizations to mandate 
their uh, and imposing their ideas because they're of very little persuasive value, especially for those of us in cities who do come from a diverse milieu. I'll even use one of their terms. And it's like, no one I know thinks like this when it comes to other races or genders or sexualities. We don't think in these terms. Everyone gets along organically. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, these are the kind of people that thought the dog sex paper was like legit, right? What's the dog sex paper? No, I don't know know about my dog sex. Okay. So (laughs) let me just, my wife's not here. She gets so sick of hearing the story so I can actually tell it. She hears it through the door when I'm in here. She's like, are you going to talk about the papers again? So two years ago, two of my colleagues and I, people I wrote the books with Peter and Helen, um, we, we wrote a bunch of fake academic papers and submitted them. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So the one that got the most attention was literally about using people watching dogs have sex at the dog park as an implicit bias test to find out what their attitudes on rape culture were. And that, I mean, literally it was like, we, we claimed that we were a feminist researcher sitting in a park for a thousand hours in Portland in one year, but never in the rain. Like let that sink in for a second. Like it's raining all the time in Portland, except in June or something like that. And so anyway, we examined 10,000 dogs genitals and then we interrogated owners. We watched Pete, the dogs how having sex and looked at how the owners reacted. Did they flip out? Was it were they matter if it was straight dog sex or gay dog sex? This is literally what the the test was. And that was not supposed to tell what their attitudes about homosexuality were, but rather their attitudes toward rape culture. And this paper was given an award for excellence in scholarship in the field of feminist geography. And it's just unbelievable it's like these are the this is you are correct that is you know a white pill that i need to keep sucking on all the time is that you know these people are are transparently clowns i mean just transparently clowns well let me me black pill you for a second so is the joker oh i'm already there so no no so what i'm saying is just because they're clowns does not mean they're not capable of enormous harm and murder as well in the in the meantime oh yeah i'm i'm almost positive that's coming i mean i'm i am black pilled so but it depends on like what time frame we're talking about with with which pill. It's like, can I have a black and white pill? No, it's like short no. to medium term. I think we're screwed, so, but in uh, the end, it'll come out okay. Then that's white pilled. That's white pilled. Yes, if if, oh. if it's it's going to be difficult in the medium term, short term. That's not even a question. The question is, uh, it, it it's it's is it possible that the good guys are going to win? And if it is possible, then you fight on your feet and you fight for that. That's all that yeah, the white course. pill is. Yeah, it's not, well, of course, though. There's many people, especially in the alt-right, who think that, oh, because of demographics or whatever, it's all it's all hopeless. And I'm like, it, America was much worse off under Woodrow Wilson and FDR than it is in contemporary times, especially in terms of ideology and totalitarianism and all these other things. Yeah, those people should probably talk to the uh, Latinos and see what they think about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Not um, big fans. Hey, guys, want to talk about our newest sponsor, Fume, F-U-M. These are really cool. It's a great non-addictive replacement for smoking, vaping, and nicotine. What it is, what Fume is, it's a hollow piece of Canadian maple. It looks like a steampunk vape, really cool looking. They have these different cores that you stick in the end, which are infused with the benefits of the world's super plants. These are great replacement therapy. People who are smokers, who are vapors, you don't know what to do with your hands, right? You have that kind of tick. Fume replaces that hand-to-mouth action. And the different cores have different uses. Peppermint for better breathing, lavender for relaxation, hand, uh, made in Calgary, Alberta, Canada with Canadian maple. If you go to fumessential.com and use promo code MALICE, 
you get 10% off. You can subscribe for monthly deliveries. Um, if you check out their website, fumessential.com and promo code malice, you can start to quit smoking, which is the worst habit for your health that you can have. I'm not joking. Let's get back to the show. Talk about imp- implicit bias. So how it's presented is, you know, people like babies will look at photos of white people and then black people. They will somehow signal their preference for white people. Doesn't this prove that kids, even from a very early on, uh, are taught or received somehow racial preferences. And isn't it fair to say that it's really bad when kindergartners or very young people are going to be treating people of color in a worse off manner? Well, I mean, you would think so, except that there's no evidence whatsoever that this translates into any behavioral anything at all. No matter of fact, so the study that they like to quote on this are a few of these that I actually bothered to look up. Um, one of the studies they like to quote is that by three years old, there's already racial preference showing up in implicit bias tests. Okay. Well, the test that they did with that, they actually only did it with white children. And so they have, oh, they have absolutely no way to rule out that it's just that the person looks the most like their mother. And I said three years, I think I meant three months, um, very early on. Uh, it's very early in the development, but it's, it's, there's, they, they did not have a sufficient experiment to determine whether it's just person who's got similar skin tone to my mother. Uh, they had, they, they don't, the, the study is, is really poor. What a shock. And then they did a second study that's saying, oh, well, you know, I six years old this and by 12 years old that and whatever. And what they actually ended up showing is that by 12 years old, you know, there's literally no demonstration of explicit bias whatsoever. You ask these children, you know, at 12 years old, do you think that, you know, white people are better than black people or vice versa or whatever? And there's no evidence of, of any biased intent whatsoever. And there's no evidence that it translates into behavior whatsoever. So that's not really, let me ask you, doesn't that show how pernicious it is if it's not even showing up in the test? I mean, that's their claim, right? (laughs) Right? This is like some Freudian nonsense. It's like getting inside of people's heads and then claiming that there's some, you know, force that you can kind of detect, but we don't really know what we're detecting. Something is being detected, but it's not quite clear what is being detected because the, the testing mechanism is, you know, what is the speed of reaction between various words or various images and various words? And, you know, they're, they're talking about literally tens of, of milliseconds of difference uh, being indicative of something. And then looking at the way that this, 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 this translates into no observable biases in, in actual behavior, however. So I don't understand how that's supposed to be indicative of anything except that it becomes a pseudo or maybe slightly stronger than pseudo scientific tool by which they can say, see, there really is internalized dominance. See, there really is internalized racism. There really is this um, hidden white supremacy culture, uh, which is really weird also, because from what I understand with the implicit bias tests, you know, you don't see, you don't see people having, um, intra-racial preference you just see this same pattern cropping up everywhere with everybody and so maybe it's something else completely you know uh, I, I have no idea what it's finding 
but it's not it's not apparently finding anything that has any there's no connection that's been demonstrated whatsoever to it, it having any impact in the real world in terms of people's actual ba- behaviors or bias or beliefs or whatever and in the current milieu if we're going to talk about current milieus where we've become so sensitive to all these things um it's probably the case that it's something that people try to compensate for already yep. and so if you if the implicit bias is as they say it is there's a good chance that under the current social situation or contract that we're, we're operating in, that it's probably producing a reverse result to what they're claiming. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of this, especially also given how easy it is to game the test, uh, which, you know, I don't know if you've done that, but it, you can do it on your first try, <laughs> like literally. Is there any concern in this space? I'm assuming the answer is no, but I'd like to hear the, the thought process. When you using the term Asia, like one of my books is about North Korea. If you go to Asia and basically try to conflate someone who's from Korea and from Japan, or tell a Chinese person that I'm going to categorize you the same as this Cambodian or this Filipino, you would be looked at as 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 you you, you might be grounds for assault or at least an argument. You, they at least think you're a lunatic. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's matter of factly been discussed here, whereas if you drill a little deeper, they, at the same time they will they will gleefully, not gleefully, gladly admit that the Japanese American experience is not the same as the Chinese American experience. It's not the same as the Vietnamese experience. And yet at the same time, just they'll just put them in the same basket. How do they, um, do, do they even address this kind of concern? I mean, I'm sure that somebody's working on the epicycles here. On this, but <laughs> okay. but um, generally, no, they usually try to create political voting blocks. That's what they're usually most interested in. Uh, It's all a political ploy and the races and the identities are actually incidental to that. So they're usually trying to create the largest block that they can. As a matter of fact, what you're talking about is, I mean, well known to most people in history, uh, the the most vicious act of racism I've ever seen in my entire life with my own eyes that I've witnessed was in China um, toward a guy who was with us from LA who's Korean and like the Chinese guy, we're at Starbucks, just freaking lost it on the Korean dude. Cause he's Korean. And then wow. when he didn't even speak, you know, he doesn't speak Chinese. He doesn't, or he doesn't speak any Asian language. I don't think he even speaks Korean. Maybe he does, but he certainly wasn't going to show it. Um, the, he was speaking English. The Chinese guy flipped out even harder. You're a traitor to your race. You shouldn't even be in China. And I, like, we thought we were going to see a fist fight break out. The guy's just going bonkers on the Korean dude. So what you're talking about is hundred percent true. Um, and no, the, the, the AAPI, right? They're actually trying to group identities together. Is that Asian American Pacific Islander? Is that what AAPI stands yeah. for? So they're like trying to, they're trying to cobble them together to create coalitions that are politically useful under an identity politics umbrella. Um, it's a, you know, it, you see the same kind of ham fisted crap with LGBT, which crams right. together things. Uh, that that don't naturally go together. And in some cases, you know, the T in some senses is contradictory to the, to the L and the, the, the G and the B. And then when you put the Q on, it's now you're openly contradictory because those people are hostile to the other groups. I mean, so you're, you're trying to create, they're trying to create political coalitions out of identities. And the point isn't to get anything right. The point is to create coalitions. Um, yeah, I mean, you, they even cobble together under Asians, you know, South Asians, you know, yeah, yeah. Indians. And yeah, because, yeah, they're, they're basically the same. No big deal. Whatever. You know, it's but it's it's what's useful to create a political coalition that 
can become a uh, identity block. That's all they care about is creating. I mean, you see this, for example, in Kimberly Crenshaw's paper, uh, Mapping the Margins, which is her kind of biggest paper. It's not where she introduced the idea of intersectionality, but it's where she made it uh, get operationalized. And so she's talking about at the beginning that what we've learned is that, you know, a victim here or there doesn't have any political power. But if you group them together by an identity block and maybe the millions, now you have a lot of political power. So that's the objective. So certainly you would see kind of while there may be people working out these epicycles because they can leverage a little advantage over somebody else or call somebody else problematic from within the bigger goal is going to be to try to create, you know, Asian American and Pacific Islander solidarity where it all becomes one giant issue that looks like it affects lots and lots and lots of people. So let me ask the uh, author, co-author of how to have impossible conversations. How would someone have a conversation with someone who just graduated college and has this worldview? If they've already taken the worldview on all the way, you're kind of screwed because I don't, I don't know that it's actually possible because I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because they actually, if they're fully into the worldview, they view conversation as one of the tools of the, one of the so-called master's tools as Audrey Lord had it, one of the tools of the uh, power structure. So you see them complain about this in terms of things like respectability politics or complaining that civility or even the demand for reasoned dialogue or reason at all, that these things are, are tools of say white supremacy or patriarchy or whatever and used to exclude other people. So that makes it very difficult to have the conversation with them. But in general, as one of the authors of that book, the way that you have to go into it is actually to ask questions that they're probably not likely to be able to answer. A Socratic approach. Yeah, a very Socratic approach. So, you know, questions like the, you know, with normal people or people who have taken on some of the worldview, but they're not all the way steeped in it, you can ask questions that expose the contradictions because they're not, they have not fully embraced that dialectical model of thought, but they're kind of like, you know, knee deep in it rather than underwater. So yeah, maybe they just don't want to be racist. They don't want to be prejudiced. Yeah, you know, exactly. This, yeah. And so you, if you start asking questions like, well, what about, you know, the fact that Latinx is a term that fewer than 20% of um, Latinos recognize or even know, and less than 2% of them are willing to use it. And they, many of them complain about, you know, how it's like colonialism and some stupid gringo thing. How does that, what do you do with the, you know, the fact that the overwhelming majority of the people reject this term? And those kinds of questions will take normal people and kind of shake them up a little bit. Uh, what do you do with the fact that, you know, defunding the police has worked out really badly, primarily for black neighborhoods and black owned businesses. That's who's seen the most damage. And the fact that black lives matter didn't give any of the money to any of these things. You know, how do you square that? Those kinds of questions will get normal people, but people who are all the way baked into it. You have to ask them practical questions. It's called exposing the, uh, illusion of explanatory depth. And what you have to do is basically start asking them, okay, Let's just take by fiat that you're right. How does this work? What is, how do we implement it? What are the details? Like walk me step by step through how, how are we going to put this in? Who's going to pay for it? Where does the money come from? Um, what is the intended outcome? You know, what is, what does it look like while we're implementing it? What does it look like when it's implemented and what does that achieve? How does it do it? And because they don't have answers to those things, because I mean, we even discussed on Twitter earlier that it's, uh, I can't even say the word on the spot, millenarian. And so millenarianism, yeah. Yeah. So it just believes that when certain conditions in society are achieved, that the utopia pops out. And so it doesn't know the how. Um, 
again, I mentioned my friend, Mike Nana, he's a filmmaker. So he usually describes this in terms of, of films. He's like, you know, they have the, we're going to indoctrinate everybody scene. And then they have, you know, the utopia scene. And in between is scene missing. It's they the underpants gnomes. It is the underpants gnomes. It's exactly <laughs> the underpants. What was that? 1998 that they did the underpants gnomes thing. Yeah. So far ahead of the curve. But that's yeah. the logic. It's that the utopia is going to pop out. So they don't know how. They don't have the slightest idea how. How is getting rid of standardized tests going to improve, you know, merit-based admissions for talented, uh, underprivileged kids? They don't have the slightest idea how this is going to work. They have the slightest, because it doesn't. They don't have an answer. It doesn't usually work on them, though, because if they're all the way in, they're just going to scream re and call you a name and, and, and move along. But it does work on people who see that go down, Um and this is a culture that uh, where people are incentivized and trained to be as emotional and often as aggressive as possible because this is presented as passionate. This is being presented as a fighter and you're not doing it on behalf of yourself. God forbid you're doing it on behalf of these poor marginalized people who are not in a position to talk because obviously someone's a person of color or they're LGBT. They can't get onto Twitter for some reason, their hands don't work or they don't know how to use a computer. Uh, That's so what Joe your- Biden said. They yeah, don't know how yeah. to get on the internet. <laughs> Yeah. So it's your role as this educated, you, you got the diploma, uh, you, you, as Thomas Sowell talks about the vision of the anointed, it is your job to be the warrior on their behalf and any kind of equivocation or any kind of uh, civility towards the enemy, you are selling out uh, these weak, uh, marginalized people. Amen and a woman. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's another white pill. Like if this is the level of... Um, uh, uh, just discourse that you're dealing with. It's like, this is, these are not bright actors today. We're welcoming back IP vanish VPN to the show. IP vanish has been a longtime sponsor of ours. So it's great to have them back. If you care about the security of your online activity, the easiest way to protect yourself is with IP vanish VPN. It's rated four out of five stars in Trustpilot. IP vanish provides an encrypted connection for all of your internet traffic. And here's the thing. If you go to ipvanish.com slash welcome, all lowercase, that's ipvanish.com slash welcome, you get 50% off monthly and annual subscriptions. So it helps to prevent websites, Wi-Fi providers, and even hackers from intercepting your data. You keep your financial details, personal information, and online activity safe from threats with IPVanish. All you have to do is go to ipvanish.com slash welcome. You get 50% off monthly and annual subscriptions. That's not too shabby. Let's get back to the show. Let me circle back to quote the press secretary a little bit. When you were talking about their use of language as a means basically of forcing outcomes that they find desirable, uh, this is pretty much one of the big themes of 1984 where George Orwell where the party was making it impossible to it, literally to say things were bad. You have to say ungood because the good is just so, on Facebook implemented this. You can have likes on Facebook. You can have dislikes. There's an asymmetry there. Um, do you see any places where this ideology has been defeated or is in retreat? I know of some companies where it has been resoundingly defeated. Okay. Um, so individual corporations uh, have here and there, beat it. It's very interesting right now, as far as kind of on a bigger scale, watching what's going on around the San Francisco school board. Um, and San, I mean, all of California in some sense, you know, the re- recalling the governor, everybody's pissed off at him. 
Looks like they're going to try to pull a recall on the San Francisco Board of Education. Looks like they're going to probably oh, wow. try a recall on uh, Kesa Boudin, uh, the district attorney for San Francisco. People are pissed. Oh, let's talk about that district attorney in San Francisco because this is one of those under-the-radar uh, stories where I think more people need to be aware of just how – it's not like a Nancy Pelosi figure we're dealing with with that no, DA. Can you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, can, we, can you tell, tell them who that is? I mean, I don't know. I don't know who he is as well as you do, probably. So you'll have to fill in with me. But he is the if I'm not mistaken, he's a children, a child, I should say, of actual terrorists right? who were arrested for actual terrorism. And so he vowed that he wasn't going to see families broken up over sending people to jail, you know, at least when they were doing, you know, the right kind of justice oriented work. And so he ends up somehow I don't know how he ended up in the uh seat of the district attorney. So he immediately like fires all of the seasoned prosecutors within the first couple of weeks that he's there. You know, it's kind of young, young gun coming in here. And basically I was, I just talked to somebody in San Francisco. That's a kind of a high flyer who will go unnamed at the moment. And they said, it's just a known known right now under Kesa Boudin. Like, let's say that you wanted to school, uh, sue the school system for this, for discrimination or it's, it's, you know, refusal to open or whatever other thing, you know, refusal even to have a plan to open. And you wanted to just sue them. Well, of course, you have to be a plaintiff and you have to put your name on the lawsuit. It's just sure. a known known that if you take on the left in San Francisco right now, your house is going to get vandalized and trashed. You're going to get harassed and that whoever does it is going to have their charges dropped by Kesa Boudin. This is and, just... And- and this no. is their MO because then there's more strife, there's more conflict. Then you look to the state to have more power. Conservatives certainly would do this to have law and order, mm-hmm. more strife, more power of the state, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, and this was actually the kind of uh, uh, Allende model uh, in Chile back in the 70s, which, right. uh, you know, better for worse, brought about the, the coup with Pinochet because there was just wide scale nationwide in that case here. in San, And my understanding in San Francisco is he's refusing to prosecute for shoplifting under a certain amount of money. So people yeah. walking in the store, take whatever they want, and the police will not, I don't know if they'll even arrest them, but they're not prosecuting them. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it'd be a waste of their resources to even try to arrest them. So you can't, really operate businesses in this kind of a circle. And the, the the thing is, though, is again, is the asymmetry. We kind of saw this. It's a more complicated thing, but in Salem, Oregon yesterday, where, you know, the Antifa's out there busting up cars and harassing people and spraying people in the face. And that dude pulls out his handgun after his, his windshield gets painted. They're breaking his windows. They're yeah. spraying him with pepper spray, bear spray, apparently. And he pulls out a handgun and the cops who've been standing there watching all this go on and like not doing anything is suddenly, you know, on the ground, man. And so they they disarm him and they arrest him. And so it's if you if the the asymmetry becomes the problem. I'm not saying that I'm a big fan. I know you're you're much more anarchist than I am in this regard. But if the shopkeeper can't, yeah, every regard. (laughs) If the shopkeeper can't shoot back, yeah, or the guy with the truck can't shoot back, that's when you actually have a problem. Or even flash his gun. He doesn't even have to shoot back. He yeah, just has he to be like, all right, fl- I've got a gun. Get away from my car. I'm pointing at the sky. I'm not pointing yep. at anybody. Nope. And they, they arrest, it would arrest him for that. And so that, that becomes a serious problem because that creates a kind of instability that's going to erupt, you know, in a, in a, in a nasty way eventually. And so people like Kesa Boudin, you know, know what they're doing. They're destabilizing that society. Right. And if all it was was a completely like, you know what, I'm just not prosecuting anything, you'd have lawlessness and you'd have various, you know, problems around that. But it's we're not going to prosecute one very select 
set of things. And if you try to try to stand up for yourself or you try to, you know, do anything to protect your business or your home or yourself, we're going to screw you over. And then especially, by the way, when there's a political motivation that favors our side, we're always going to be cool. And when it's against our side, we're always going to throw the book at you as literally hard as we can. You're, you're creating a recipe for a catastrophe when you keep doing that. And so case of is a, is a big problem and getting him out of that office in San Francisco really has to be like a top priority for the community. If they don't want that community to melt down, um, in scary, proper, real violence, uh, before one, a matter of time. Uh, one analysis I heard about the 2020 election is that both with the democratic party, pr- very heavily putting their finger in the scale and forcing Biden to be the nominee over Bernie Sanders. Plus with the increased number of Republicans who were elected in the house, when all the polls said the Democrats were going to pick be picking up seats, that this was in many ways, a center left repudiation of what you're talking about, that this is the corporate democratic party. Who's not particularly as big fans of this as some of the activists, although they use it to further themselves and that's who's really running the show. Hmm. I mean, the proof doesn't seem to be in that pudding. Uh, there is that that happened. Um, Bernie's an interesting case because Bernie's actually much more left-wing populist and not left-wing establishment. Right. Wokeism is an ideology that despite being kind of, um, it's got strong communist roots, right? It's It's figured out that it's, its avenue to success is through the establishment. Its goal was to do a long march through the institutions Branchy, and take over the yes. institutions. Yes. So if you all of a sudden get rid of the institution, if you bring a populist in left wing or right, that's not going to be in part of their agenda. Uh, the other thing is, is it's a little bit different now because they have so much power. They have so much, they're so close to having hegemony in the culture, at least temporarily, that they're being quite bold. But normally they don't want their guys at the top. They don't want them highly visible. They want them, you know, two layers in the bureaucracy yeah, down the power from the behind top. the throne. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They, they want, I mean, this was, again, this is Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci laid out the idea is that you infiltrate the existing institutions and establish a counter hegemony from within that then kind of, you know, very cordyceps, like it zombifies the organization and then takes over the whole thing. That is their model. It is, this is why the cordyceps meme, which is a little highbrow, I, I gather, but uh, I admit, but uh, the cordyceps meme sticks because that's what's going on. You have this kind of, you know, fungus ideology that's par- becoming like parasitic into uh, a, an institution or an individual that gets them to do its will from within. But if you just put somebody up on the top, they just become a target to shoot at. And to, not literally, but, you know, in terms of creating a strong public pressure campaign to get them out. Um and so they tend to not want to do that. So Bernie being squashed out, even if it depends, you know, was he a populist or had he tipped, you know, had he sold out, which side was he on? It's real hard to say now in 2016, it wasn't hard to say, right. But now it's hard to say, I don't know where he is um, ideologically, but either way, Joe Biden is safe, safe, safe. Look, he's basically asleep. We have to put him to bed at five 30 because yeah, he has yeah. sundowners. Um, you know, we have to, he's safe. Look how safe sleepy grandpa Joe is. Nothing bad's going to happen. He's a, he's always been a moderate. He, you know, he's always been corrupt, but he's always been a moderate. He'll be held to account by his moderate base. And this tricked massive load of people. <laughs> I mean, even him putting out very radical ideas like his complete racial equity program and, and literally everything tricked a lot. He, even with that, they're like, oh, no, no, no. Joe is safe. Joe is safe. You know, so um, very kind of Trojan horse mentality here. Uh, and 
Joe the puppet seems much more believable, especially now, than Joe the uh, guy who is leading or calling a single shot anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, that was the case over the summer, too. I think they chose him because he was safe to vote. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah, because then he's bland. It's kind of hard to pin anything onto him. His record hasn't been uh, of standing out for one issue or another, particularly in any way. So people can, you know, he'll be a blank slate and that's a, a blank canvas, excuse me. And that would be of a, a great use uh, um, to them. What well, I mean, do- another point, I know we've got a mutual friend in, in Bridget Fetacy. I she love made her. The joke. Yeah, she's hilarious. She made the joke on Twitter um, that and then remember that Trump, you know, his game was kind of the art of the insult. There's even like a doc, fake documentary made about called that about Trump. But she said you can't make fun of somebody with dementia, right? It's just not cool. And so it's like this is this really awful dimension to this. If you think, well, the Democrats really knew what they were doing and choosing it, you can't make fun of him. Hey, Bridget. It's like, I even feel bad making fun of Joe Biden. That's because you're weak because you're an American. I'm, I'm from the weak. Soviet Union. Bridget, challenge accepted. <laughs> I, I'm going to ride this dementia pony all the way to Gainesville. Um, I'm here how for much- it. I'll <laughs> retweet of, you. I'll probably of, lean into it too. I think a lot of people will. Um, I mean, Trump did drop that one uh, resident in chief where he crossed out the P and showed oh, him in a nursing home. I didn't home. see that. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Instead of president or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, no, Biden for resident is what it was. He oh, crossed out the P and showed him in a nursing home or something like that. So you were saying that you were very concerned about the um, uh, um, short to medium term. One of the points I made um, uh, during the riots was that corporate America has done a better job of implementing Maoism than the Chinese Communist Party was ever has been. We have seen in a few years college-educated urban whites go from a situation where they're terrified of being called racist or being perceived as racist to getting on phone calls at their job and proclaiming, I am a racist, which is, I mean, it's just shocking to see how quickly that, that has turned. But what do you see as corporate America's role in all this? And why do you, do you think there's any hope there at all to to, uh, change that ship? I don't know about hope. Um, They do follow what there is to follow. The model is not Maoist, however. You know, it's easy to say that. And I say it a lot on Twitter myself. I've written about it and spoken about it. Let me interrupt you, though. Don't you think this – I'm talking about specifically those struggle sessions. Do you not think those are Maoist? Okay, that's what I'm saying. Okay. The the cultural revolution side is quite Maoist, yes. But the goal is not to institute Maoism. The goal is to institute something that we might more accurately call Dengism. Deng Xiaoping, who yeah, yeah. followed Mao, and what he figured out was how to wed the kind of corporate power to the to the CCP, and so you have like kind of all the power in the universe. You know, work you go get as rich as you want, build your corporations because you want pollute whatever you want, burn trash outside, you know, whatever. You know, you get big enough, you get rich, no regulations, but you insult the CCP and you're you yep. don't, you don't, will it will disappear you. You know, you're not a billionaire anymore. Somebody else runs your company now. And so this model is more like the model that we're headed toward. And a lot of people don't know who Deng Xiaoping was. They don't know the history following Mao. And so it's very difficult to kind of relate this to people in a quick way. So the corporate model has been tested and perfected since the late 1970s or early 1980s in China. You know, the kind of corporate it's like corporatized. It's like fascist communism. It's like a yeah. blend of them. And that model has been being worked out like in a lot of the kinks in it, early kinks in it have been being worked out over the past 
three or four decades. And so people, people fail to understand that uh, the corporations being in on this does not change the nature of what it is. Um, and they are extremely effective and they turn out to be an Achilles heel for, for the United States in particular, because we have so many legal protections baked in that the Republicans, in fact, very dutifully made sure yep. got put into place that free enterprise, however big, however, whatever it is, you know, has final say. So Facebook can ban whoever or whatever it wants. Twitter can ban whoever or whatever it wants. It can, you know, create these horrific, weird, um, you know, very biased and biasing kind of uh, algorithms and things that, that favor certain narratives and, and squash or destroy others. But there's no and implicit bias, of course, because that's only about race. That's right. Yeah, these biases are very explicit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're right on there um, when, when you go look them up. But, they don't, <laughs> but the thing is, I don't know how you get corporations who are massively empowered by this to decide it's actually in their better interest not to continue doing this. Right. And then the the worst part is, is that a lot of these people have either been captured ideologically or they've been captured by people who have cooked up stupid things like um, uh, sustainable development goals and uh, the, what ESG, what is it, environmental social goals or something like that, governance or some shit, I don't know. And so they've come up with these 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 metrics by which companies are judged in terms of how good or how investable they are or how useful they are. And those are all just cooked through with this ideology. So they're all competing to play harder in this ideology. Part of the ideological capture behind that is that there is literally a death cult that has decided that the world is going to end in a short period of time due to climate change if we don't take radical action. Or even if we do take radical action, that's the funny part. A lot of them say, even if we do everything we're saying, we're still screwed. And it's just like, then why are we doing it? Well, because we want to do it anyway. It's just like, wait, what? If you you ask them, they will explicitly say, even if we implement all of this, we're still doomed. And then it's like, but then what? Can I at least have fun in the meantime? (laughs) Yeah, but but the, 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 exactly, please. But the evil, like, the evil is that there's there's a level of cronyism here that I don't even know what you do with because like just take the example of these stupid vaccine passports, right? So they introduced this idea of a vaccine passport. We could talk for the next hour about how horrible of an idea that is, but just we'll take them as they are. So what happens next? So Pfizer and Moderna, right? They they make vaccines. So what you're like, you know, well, every two or three months we're gonna drop out a new vaccine that's yeah. gonna make us you know, $200 billion. Look and how often, you don't, remember, sorry to interrupt you, but those of us who had Flash on our computers, remember how often Flash had to update? Well, if, yeah. it's a, if it's a virus that's mutating, they can with a straight face say, it's six months, it's now COVID-27, you better get your shot if you want this passport. Why are you taking that chance? Your five minutes of your life could mean saving someone's life. Surely you're not going to not do that. Yeah, exactly. And the the key here is Pfizer and Moderna are just like, you know, walking with their monocle and their top hat and bags and bags and bags and bags of money all the way down the way. Um, so why, what motivation would Pfizer and Moderna have to, to not be on board with this program, you know, as kind of a evil faceless corp that is stands to make hundreds of billions of dollars a year by forcing you to get injections that you don't actually need. Um, the business model for them turns out to be pretty good. Uh, so I don't know how you, this is, this is when you ask like why, you know, when you say white pill and I say black pill, this is kind of why I'm more black pilled. 
In the like short term, no, I hear you. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm also interested in is it's a given that uh, Nazism is regarded as just abhorrent and horrible. I actually interviewed Jared Taylor from my book, and he found the idea of Nazism to be absolutely like insane uh, for America. But when you bring up communism, it's regarded as kitschy. Uh, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of like, oh, it's, it's, I love Lucy. It's like, oh, communism, ha, 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 ha. Even though, you know, to this day, if you look at Venezuela or North Korea, which does not identify as communist any longer, I mean, the, the blood that was spilled in the name of this ideology for decades is just limitless. Pol Pot is another good example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my finger is pointing at the right. Because you can understand why people on the left, especially the hard left, are, it's going to be of great use to them to have this be a laughing stock. Then you don't have to bother addressing that the blood is on your hands for what you did in the 30s. But I'm, are you surprised how little on the right are talking about just how bad this is and the consequences in the past? Um, a little bit. You know, I do like to – when, when you said that you point your finger at the right, my first thought was because they called everything in the universe communism and socialism for the last yeah. like 30 years. And it's like some of that guys really wasn't. And so – and now they're all like, see, it was slippery slope, and they just still look kind of crazy. Um, another aspect, though, that I point a finger at there is in the education system, which got taken yeah. over very early by leftist activists who were ultimately Marxists. And so it was in their best interest to make sure that the – the, the the kids were not informed about the horrors that have been attendant to every attempt to install socialism in the world ever. Um, I mean, the, our education, our schools of, of education were more or less captured by like 81 or 82 or something like that. So we're talking literally 40 years where the Marxists on some level or Marxist sympathetic types have run education and then i mean i have no idea though because there was all these complaints about texas board of education you know with all of its crazy like you know a is for armadillo and whatever or alamo or whatever they have to do everything has to be texas centric um but they they didn't that i mean i don't i don't even know how to put it i never learned about communism until i was in college i never learned about it it was a word i knew but that was it i didn't even know what it meant and you know, I wouldn't have, I never heard of Solzhenitsyn until Jordan Peterson started talking about him. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. You just doesn't get taught. It just, I mean, there are reasons because Solzhenitsyn had like some pretty strong anti-Semitism in some of what he did too. So I understand why they kind of like downplay that at the high that's school not, level. But, yeah, but that's not why they don't talk about him. I don't think so either. Not I think it's, it's because they don't want people to know how bad it is. And I think, you know, I point at the right for calling everything in the universe that, but I also point at the left for occupying the education system and making sure that people remained ignorant of it. Um, and then they they have a, a much, you know, we say the left can't mean, but they have a much better uh, kind of propaganda game than people tend to give them credit. You know, they talk, they're so relentlessly good using critical theory at pointing out where something went wrong and saying that capitalism did yeah. And they're so relentlessly good at pointing out and saying they don't have to say, you know, look at this other example of a socialist place. They just say, oh, this is capitalism screwing up. This is capitalism screwing up. This is capitalism screwing up. And they do it so relentlessly and so well. I mean, you see, see on Twitter, you know, the most asinine things that capitalism allegedly did. And it gets, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of, of likes and retweets and things like that, which, of course, also is part of the game. That's largely not organic. That, sure. You know. So they're really good at the propaganda game. And um, communists realized 
at least 30 years ago that American citizens, especially, but America maybe including its intelligence communities, um, just don't understand political warfare. They don't understand propaganda. They don't understand how to identify it, how to resist it. Um, I was even talking about an example on Twitter a little bit ago, which is the the so-called um, reflexive statement where, you know, it was, you know, nothing will ever go back to normal after COVID. You know, well, that's only true if everybody believes it. Right. Yeah. So it's reflexive. It, it's not true on its on its face. And it's not false on its face. It becomes true or becomes false. There's your kind of dialectical mindset, by the way. Becomes true or becomes false based on whether or not people believe it. And they're super good at this. They're really good at putting these reflexive statements out and making people feel like it's an inevitability. Right. And then with, with the right side of history argument, which side, this is inevitable, which side do you want to be on? They're super good at putting all that together in a, in a very um, coordinated act of political warfare that demoralizes all opposition. Yeah. How much easier it is to fight a battle when your opponents are like, what's the point? I'm not going to win. So they're just going to stay home. That's what you want. That's yeah. the ideal scenario where everyone else is like, I can't win or it's going to be too hard. It's like, okay, great. I took the battlefield and I didn't lose a cent or, or, yeah. or a finger. Yeah. Sunza is like, haha, you know, of course. Yeah. Uh, um, so this is, this is, something they're extremely good at and they have been doing relentlessly for a hundred years and improving and perfecting. And I don't think since probably the 1950s have American citizens been very good at identifying that kind of propaganda. I don't think they ever have been. I, I think this is, I mean, this, I don't know if you've ever played the game, uh, secret Hitler, um, or these no. other, like there's game werewolves basically, uh, or mafia. It's a, another party game where you have an informed minority against an uninformed majority. And this is the Lenin model when you have a little cadre of intellectuals mm-hmm. and there's, te- or this is rent capture, right? If I'm in the sardines industry and everyone else is in the sardines industry, we just got a lobby Mitch McConnell. Hey, put a five cent tax and give the money to us. Five cents for 350 million people, they're not going to notice it. But five cents times 350 million for me as the sardine manufacturer, I'm loaded. So there's an enormous asymmetry. And same thing here. It's like most people are oblivious. All it's going to take is that small number and they can you know, move the earth. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I think three and a half percent is enough if you have a sufficiently informed minority acting as a coordinated vanguard. Yeah. And this um, is why when people tell me, oh, you never can get the majority of people to agree with you. I'm like, you never get the majority of people to think it, that's completely irrelevant. I mean, as <laughs> long as you have, no, but, but it is a battle of the, of the elites in this kind of Italian school way, where if you, they have 3.5%, you have 1%. It's not, I mean, you have a fighting chance. It's not 53 versus 47, because that's the consequence by the time it gets to the polls. Yeah, exactly. It, that, that's exactly right. So, um, people should, I mean, I don't think the left can meme to be honest with you, but they are relentlessly good at propaganda. And so getting people to identify that propaganda, I think is, is is extraordinarily important right now. And these critical theories, critical race theory, for example, are just really good at cooking up propaganda. You know, why do they always want to, to pull up all the, the most awful stories of history. You know, why do they always say such and such is rooted in because they want to, it's, it's all a propagandizing game. It's a branding. That's right. And then that very Hegelian, very dialectical 
article of faith, the, the right side of history, you know, that history has a talos and at the end of it, there's a right side and the wrong side and you will be judged accordingly. Um, when you tack that mentality on and people don't realize they're like, Oh, the right side of history. Ha ha. No. When you tack that on, it turns all of that, that propaganda that they have into a, a very formidable weapon. And it's especially like now. you said, yeah. yeah, you'll get people motivated at that level. You'll also get people who either won't show up or what they'll do is very cynically. They will, they'll, they'll, they'll judge their, their, their odds. Right. And they'll say, well, yep. it looks like the new world order's coming and I better, if I had to pick, I'd rather have a place in it than not. So I won't be an enemy of the thing coming. And so you have people who literally lay down their guns, if you will, yep. um, and not fight against it, not stand up to it. Because if it does, if, if all the shit goes bad, you know, it's in their personal best interest to be positioned to try to survive and, and be well placed in the new order. And yeah, that's, they've made it, they are making it clear that the cost benefit analysis is going to be very disproportional. Whereas if you fight us, we're going to absolutely destroy you and your family. Uh, whereas if you don't do anything, you're not going to lose anything. So sit down and shut up. And it, you, when you do the math, it's a really, if, if, if what they're saying is true, then the, the choice are obvious. Look what happened with the guy who ran, um, what's that, that gay workout organization, CrossFit. Uh, the, the head of CrossFit was like, we have nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. We're a fitness and he got fired or yeah, driven right. out of his company that he founded. Yeah. Yeah. So you make examples and you, you know, speaking of propaganda too, a lot of people don't know this about propaganda. They think, Oh, propaganda tricks, dumb people. No, no, it no actually it's tricks easy. smart people. This is my line. It's a lot easier to train a smart dog than a dumb dog. That's and right. Then you have people who have gone for four years of education, whose status is based on being perceived as better than and smarter than it is a lot easier to train them and have them be the vanguard, as you just mentioned, than to have them be just some rando who knows a, a four years of psychology. Yeah, they, 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 they'll fall for it. They'll rationalize it. They do all the heavy lifting. I mean, I call these people the very smart people. Um, yeah, they do all the heavy lifting for this kind of intellectual vanguardism. Uh, even though they technically might be against it, they might openly be against it. And yet they do all the heavy lifting by, you know, rationalizing it, looking for third ways, um, you know, that are all just kind of like soft implementations yeah. uh, or compromises. And so the ratchet turns ever, or if we were mold bug, we'd say Chulu swims left yes. yet again. Um, if there was one book that you would have everyone read other than your own, what would it be? Um. Uh, the book that I have highlighted the largest quantity of text is John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Okay. So I might recommend that, but a kind of more contemporary book. If you want to understand the basis of how a kind of free knowledge system works, I always recommend Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors. Um, but I could list a lot, a lot of books. I would actually encourage people, it's a little weird, uh, frankly, but to, to read um, Lobachevsky's Political Punerology. Have you read this? No, I'm not familiar uh, with it. Yeah. He, he, I mean, it's a little weird because he ended up having to burn the first two copies of his book. Cause like the Stasi showed up. So he had to like throw it in nope. the fire before they would, you know, confiscate it and kill him. Uh, so he ended up, you know, he's like 80 something and he writes what is now the published version of it. And he was like, you know, I don't have time to go find all my data. So I'm just going to write what I remember. And so it's a little squishy on the, on the, the fine points, but it's like, he technically did have to throw his book in the fire twice yeah. um, beforehand, you know, at pain of death. And so it's a very interesting, Ponerology refers to a theory of evil. 
So it's a very interesting look into how psychopathy um, plays a role in these kinds of evil regimes rising up. So that's an interesting one that people might want to consider reading as well, uh, way off the beaten track. Um, James, we're running out of time. What has been your favorite part of this interview? Your nose. You are welcome.